Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL podcast. And today we are at the Security Expo and we're joined by Nick Aldworth, former National Counterterrorism Coordinator for... Well, Nick, you can explain to us how this works. What was, what was the role? So uh, in the UK, we've got multiple strands of policing activity that contribute to countering terrorism. And uh, someone needs to sit in the middle of that and make sure it stays connected and uh, working in unison and within the field of protective security and preparedness, that was my role. Excellent. So Nick, for those people who uh, didn't get to the show and haven't had a chance to meet you, tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm a really lucky guy who has just had a blessed career. Um, 36 years in the military and policing, uh, left school about the age of 18, went into uh, the RAF regiment, which I think over here you call the Air Defence Gunners, something like that, and then moved from there into policing back uh, in the very, very early 90s. Um, So not by any design. I've spent almost the whole of my career working in protective security, uh, always been a uniformed operational officer, and then just got lucky, I guess, and had a few good promotions and found myself into a, a good strategic uh, leadership role within counterterrorism policing. Fantastic. And so you've been out here for the last couple of days talking about uh, the UK experience of integrating policing with private security into the counterterrorism side of things, which is... I guess, fascinating to many of us because private security and police and counterterrorism are usually things that sit at opposite ends of the spectrum. So can you tell us a little bit about what that integration looks like and what was the the litmus to sort of bring all of that about? So it it started originally as a journey of getting the private sector per se rather than the private security sector looking after itself. Uh, we, We came to a recognition after the dreadful sequence of attacks in 2017 and the very changed nature of terrorist orthodoxy, which can be anybody can be a terrorist with any weapon against any target, that really the police can't be everywhere and you really can't deal with that as a state entity, Um, and therefore mobilising society to look after itself in a coherent and informed way became our mission, uh, certainly in my sphere of uh, policing. And we started to do that by inviting business to work alongside us and to contribute to some ideas and some thinking. We brought in a group of senior advisors, we got them vetted, we gave them information, secret level information, allowed them to give us an informed view of the impact of terrorism on business. And then we started to look at, well, what role has the private security industry got to play in protecting the private sector? And then obviously by default that morphs into what can they do to work alongside us? And the example I'd give you is uh, Oxford Street is one of the biggest shopping streets uh, in the UK, certainly the biggest in London. And at any given time, there are probably about 2,000 security practitioners working along that road. It's, I think it's beyond a mile long, you know, it's a big, big road. Yep. But there's probably no more than three or four cops, if you're lucky, and they're not doing something else, like dealing with a shoplifter. Yeah. Um, so there's a reality check around this about who's most omnipotent in terms of being able to look after the public, and it is un- ambiguously unambiguously the the the, um, the private sector the private security sector so we started working with the UK's regulator uh, it's called the security industry authority the SIA and they are a quango so they're an arm's length function of government funded by government but, but operating independently and they do all the licensing uh, and standards accreditation across most sectors uh, although there are some key ones they, they don't touch and they effectively were really welcoming and a really useful ally and we, we came to a position where we recognised that it was benefit in improving standards. 
And one of the key things that we did was we said to the SIA, why don't you give us somebody from your organisation to come and work inside counterterrorism police and come be part of the team? And that was that's an absolute first, uh, yep. I suspect, anywhere. Yeah, um, for sure. Certainly in the UK it was. But what that meant was it had an immediate conduit straight back into the SIA and vice versa. But it meant that we could start understanding much better than I ever did before what the security industry in the UK looks like. You know, what is the level of practitioner? What, what can I really expect from it? And then in return, uh, one of my chief inspectors, so it's a pretty senior officer in the UK, then went and sat on the training board so of the SIA. So um, you know they sit there and they help the SIA define what training of licensees should look like. So it's a really symbiotic relationship. And the overall plan, when we get to the end stage, and you know, in fairness, this is quite embryonic, the overall plan when we get to the end stage is that we will be able to, with confidence, mobilise the private security industry to work alongside us at times of need. So then... Uh we have some past association here in Australia with an old project that came out of the UK called Operation or Project Griffin. Yeah. So how does what you were doing differentiate from Project Griffin? Because the idea of Project Griffin, as we understood it, mm. was that in the event of a terrorist emergency, the police could pr- basically second and take control of mm. all of the private security within the, the sphere that's immediately affected by that operation and use them as a, an extension or tool of what they were doing. Yeah. So Project Griffin um, has been around a long, long time. I think it originated originally uh, after 2001. And of its day, it's a fabulous, enabling piece of work that uh, created by the police and moves forward and still moves forward, actually, w- with its uh, original uh, designers and creators. Now, the only problem with that um, has been that it's got a little bit dated in terms of how society's moved along as well and how a threat in particular has has changed. But also Griffin was very much focused on, as you've quite rightly identified there, the the operational on-the-street practitioner. Now, what we've figured over the last few years in particular is the levels with which we have to engage are very different to that. So Griffin no longer fitted the model that we had in mind. And we now talk about ACT, Act being action counters terrorism. And within Act, you have a, um, a, a multiple layers of activity that the police will deliver into the private sector with a view to the private sector then being able to work alongside police or, more commonly, look after itself with a good knowledge base. So it starts with e-learning. And e-learning is available to anybody. E-learning means that member of the public can understand what terrorism is, what it looks like, what suspicious behaviour looks like, and what they might have to do if they find themselves caught up in that. And when you look at what we used to do with Griffin, and Griffin very much became that sort of awareness product, we were reaching about eight to 10,000 people a year with Griffin. In our first year with e-learning, we reached 100,000. Yep. Now, I'm not not the greatest advocate of e-learning, but, you know, when you're trying to mobilise society... Big reach is quite important. <laughs> That's yeah. where we were. And then what was Griffin, I, I suppose, became what we call Act Operational, which is very much about a bit more focus, a bit more information, a bit more specific activity to learn for those who work in the private security practitioner level. And then we had Act Strategic, so helping security managers and directors understand what strategic uh, security, counter security looks like. 
And then one of the things we used to get back from people was, yeah, look, I know what I want to do, but my board won't let me do it. They won't give me the money. They won't invest in what we need to do. Yep. And so we created a thing called Act Corporate, which would enable perhaps you as a security director, perhaps even alongside us, we're very happy to help in these things, to actually go to my board and say, look, this is what terrorism looks like. This is what it will mean for our business. And this is why I'm asking you to invest in, in that. And Griffin just didn't fit that model anymore. And we yeah. had this tiered approach. The other important thing about Griffin is, you know, we are genuinely on a journey of mobilizing the whole of society if we need to. Yep. Griffin couldn't do that. Griffin was very much, um, very localized, very specific. I have a, a, an aspiration that it, by the end of this year, we'll be able to reach pretty much anybody in the UK who wants to work alongside us. And we'll be able to mobilize any part of the UK. We've got two pilots running at the moment, one in the north of England, one in the south of England, where we are practicing mobilizing and working with the security industry much more closely than we ever have done before. Right. Okay. So obviously this is a long and involved process though. Uh, I mean, what was the thing that kicked all this off? Because right now, getting the Australian government at least to get to a point where they're prepared to sort of mandate that police need to work with private security mm. is, is probably a bit of a long bow. Mm. Uh, we're getting closer, obviously, with the Crowded Places Act and the other bits and pieces that are going on. But uh, unfortunately, I think there would need to be a major incident. Uh, is How did your journey begin? So, sadly, I think it's hard to, to really see where the genesis is, but it, it almost certainly did start in 2017 when... Um, or maybe a little bit before then, actually. Um, yeah, I, I can roll back to 2015, 2016, when we'd seen some horrendous attacks in, in Europe. And what we realised is that the means to stopping some of those attacks didn't lay with us. So when you look at uh, the acquisition of vehicles to commit um, vehicles weapon attacks, you know, we recognise that the people who operate big lorry fleets or bus fleets or rent vehicles out could play a much stronger role. And so we started working with people like Hertz, and they were one of the really earliest adopters of working with us to actually create strategies to make, to make their fleets more secure and to make the acquisition of vehicles for that sort of usage much, much harder. Uh, I mean, clearly, we then got into 2017, and we had some catastrophic activity um, that really refined what up to that point, I think, had been a bit of an ethereal idea. So we understood what Daesh were about. They appeared in 2014. We had um, Al-Adnani's famous speech about going smash his head in with a rock, use effectively anything you can find to, to, to kill the non-believer. I don't really think we understood what that meant. We were quite used to directed terrorism, you know, planned cells working together, communicating with each other, a bit like the big, uh, you know, the big attacks of 2001. Yeah. Uh, and those we'd seen from the IRA in the UK previously. But now what we suddenly had was anybody can be a terrorist using anything against yep. any target. And it was a dawning reality that police can't be everywhere. And you can't stop that as a state entity. We start to see people radicalised in a matter of days rather than over long periods of time with lots of communication going on which might give us a fighting chance of intercepting a plot. So the only way to deal with that is to go to the private sector and say, look, with our help and our facilitation, you need to look after yourselves. And that's really where that journey began. And I guess we were lucky because I never felt that we were pushing at any closed doors there was an alignment of people in the right place at the right time who all had a common belief in this. A lot of us had come out of operational policing and, and probably spent most of our life clearing up messes on street pavements, yeah. working very closely with the public. Um, so for me, that was the start. I wouldn't want to say we're there because we're not. 
Um, and I am now, you know, now I've left policing, I'm working on some campaigning where actually we do need, I think, to put a bit of legislation around this to give it a little bit more guts because at the moment it's still very much discretionary activity and you and I could go uh, out to somewhere tonight and I'd like to assume that I'm safe because there's a Health and Safety Act that says you can't leave bare wires hanging out of a ceiling and you can't leave puddles on the floor for somebody to slip over. But in the UK, there's no Security Act that says you've got to protect your participants, your company, your, your, your employees and your, your um, uh, customers from terrorism. Um, and, and so we'd like to create a standard that actually means um, you and I could go out tonight and be confident that if there was an incident, it's probably been protected against, but more importantly, the business that we're working in has a plan at the very least to deal with it. And we saw that really, really play out in 2017, in particular, uh, what we refer to as the London Bridge and Borough Market attack, where uh, three guys went on the rampage of knives uh, in a very crowded nighttime entertainment area uh, and started murdered uh, eight people in total. Um, and we saw different levels of preparedness within that area for people to have had to deal with that. And as a result of that, um, some people were saved and potentially some people were lost. Yep. So with this kind of thing, obviously, it's a journey of a million miles begins with a single step. You know, is where do we begin that buy-in process? Is it with the police? Is it with the government? And can we actually achieve that without there being a disaster that precipitates the whole thing? Well, let's be honest. You should be able to deal with it without a disaster because it's the right thing to do. And uh, I've, I've been blessed to spend many years uh, visiting and living in Australia myself. And, you know, this is a nation that cares about people and cares about itself. I do believe that. And I've actually just been briefing the ACL board and that exact question came up from one of the board members. And my response is really quite simple. You have to create or find this alliance of influencers. You have to find somebody who is willing, first of all, to take on the task to be the person that starts knocking on doors and speaking to people. Yep. And then you have to go and find the other people in government and in policing who think the same way. It's, it's stakeholder management, quite frankly, in many cases. But what you will find, uh, I hope, and I'm certain you will, is you'll find people like me who are genuinely passionately want to stop people from getting hurt uh, 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 yeah. you know I would give everything to bring back just one of the lives of the people that died in 2017 yeah um, but I think most public servants feel like that and it's interesting I've met quite a few people the last couple of days and I'm meeting some more people tonight and tomorrow and you know I'm trying to have those early seeding conversations with those people as well to say look this really isn't difficult. If it's just a collaboration, you've just got to want to do it. There's no legislation that makes you do it, but there's no legislation that stops you from doing it either. And I think the challenge you've got over here in particular um, is uh, when I lived out here in the early part of the century, uh, well, it sounds very old, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you were coming on the back end of a lot of corruption. Yeah. And you just got the, I think, the independent corruption organisation, I've forgotten what it's called now, uh, set up. Yep. And quite rightly, those who had done wrong were running scared. But actually, those who had done no wrong were also getting a bit paranoid as well about where this yeah. is all going to end up. And so you have to have this level of confidence that, and it does come from the most senior leaders in policing, so that's where I'd say you need to start pitching uh, you know, the discussion. You've got to have the confidence that you can dare to share and you can dare to engage without consequence. If you're doing it for a proper, legitimate cause, you should be able to have those... Com police should be able to have those conversations with the private sector. Uh, yeah. I was a little bit disturbed to hear that you know, the board had uh, invited, I think, some chief officers to speak to some senior people in the security industry, and there was some reluctance because people felt that was inappropriate. What's inappropriate? Yeah, you know nothing. 
it becomes inappropriate if you start awarding contracts to your buddies. But yeah. I can't believe that a policing organisation like you know, New South Wales Police or elsewhere doesn't have a proper procurement process in place, yeah. which isolates that sort of opportunity. Uh, we certainly do in the UK. So being able to talk to people in business really should not be a threat. And then you do have a slightly more uh, complicated issue over here, which, of course, you have a federal and a state uh, legislative structure. Uh, in the UK, we just have a single direct-to-government structure, albeit we yep. exist in 43 police forces. That brings its own complications. Uh, and we do have a single regulator for the industry as well. So I would say we have an advantage there. Of you, you, at the very least, you know you have fewer organisations to go to. But why couldn't somebody get those people around the table for a conversation here? Yeah. So what is the the nature of the interaction between police and private security in this arrangement that you've established now? So first and foremost, it's about creating standards. It's about helping the industry improve itself. And, you know, we've only had a regulated industry for about 16 years, I think it is now. So it's really young. You know, there's lots more mistakes to make before we get to where we want to be. But what they had to do was they created a benchmark. That was the first thing that regulator did because there was just no common standard. And the initial um, iteration of that benchmark is actually quite a low standard. Yeah, we have some of the lowest training hours anywhere in the world. I think it's about 38 hours to to secure a license. I think it's at least twice that over here. Yeah. And in some countries. It's hundreds of hours. So we are probably at the stage now where the industry has got to take a long, hard look at itself. The government's got to support the industry and say it's time to start lifting the bar. It's time definitely for customers to start paying a little bit more for the service and recognising that without security there is no profit and therefore stop driving down to the lowest common denominator, just stop yep. you know, trying to create the smallest margin you can possibly create. Um, and and I, whenever I'm speaking to um, non-security practitioners in business, I make that point repeatedly. Is you're going to get what you pay for and, and most people pay minimum wage for man guarding. Um, the industry itself needs to create better career pathways uh, you know, a young person coming in at the age of 20 as a man guard needs to aspire to be a security director in 20, 30 years' time. Um, and so we're having to drive up standards. Then the next thing we're trying to do is to create processes that actually do allow us to work together. Common standards is one thing, but the ability to actually press a button, a metaphorical button somewhere, yep. and know that I can turn out a guard force acting coherently in a way that supports what we're trying to achieve. So I imagine on some level, though, an arrangement like this means that if there is an incident, that guard force becomes available to police to help in that sort of situation. One of the first things that people asked over here in in the past in relation to things like Operation Griffin, which we now know is defunct and not appropriate Mm. for the situation, but you'll get the same objection. Mm. Who pays for it? Absolutely. So I'll be honest with you, we don't have all the answers. And I, I think security on our behalf is still security for the person that yep. has employed the guard. I think what we aspire to do is, and I, I do use those words very carefully, but I think and aspire, yep. um, it, what, what we aspire to do is to create the coherence that ensures that person A looking after building A and person B looking after building B are at least working together for a common objective because the vulnerability is not at building A and building B, it's the grey space in the middle from which the hostile attack can either be planned or launched. And if the two of those aren't working together, they're not looking after 
either of their buildings properly. So the mobilisation effect is not about saying, no, come away from your post and come work for us over here at Building C. It's about work where you're working, but do it in a coherent way. Tuesday morning next week, we think there might be a terrorist attack. Make sure you're out the front wearing high-vis vests, being visible, being intrusive around people in your area. It's that sort of mobilisation. Okay. Uh, it's helping businesses work smarter. Where we have used the private security industry, and one of the first instances of us actually contracting it in to work with us, was you're probably aware uh, in March last year, um, the, the Russians kindly tested some Novichok in a small country town in, in England and, and shockingly murdered one of our citizens on our own soil. Well, the clear-up operation for that went on for weeks and months, and it got to a point where the cordons were just unsustainable for policing. We were starting to lose core policing because so many cops were drawn into looking after uh, the scenes, many and varied all over the place. Um, so we brought private security contractors in to support those cordons, and that sounds simple, that's a leap of faith. That's yeah. a leap of faith for us. Um, but it worked. It worked really well. They were great. They were professional. They worked uh, in collaboration with uh, police officers that worked alongside them. And my mind is each and every time you do that, you just chink away a bit more of the barrier and you build a bit more of the trust. Yeah. Were there issues for police, though, when this initially came about around... Uh, you touched on standards before... Um, I imagine one of the first objections we would get in a country like Australia is the police saying, really, security? I mean, we need to do something about where they're at before we can be comfortable necessarily using them in that kind of role. Now, I think the security standards out here are pretty high, but it's got to be demonstrable, testable and repeatable for people like police. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and so the... the the first stage of any of this is to start getting those people of influence around the table together and talking, which is why I was really disappointed to hear a sort of a pushback on even speaking with each yeah. other. Uh, you know, we've got to the stage now where um, we have a cohort of vetted uh, security professionals who we bring into our secret level two-weekly planning meeting on how we're going to deal with terrorism in the UK. Mm. That's where we've got to as a, as a demonstration of trust. We're not being let down. And the other thing, of course, you know, a lot of these meetings, I think probably people assume we know more than we actually do. There's, there's, you know, a lot of it's just common pragmatism in terms of what we know and what we want to do about it. So this, this dialogue is so, so important. The, the, and the challenge you've got there is people like me, you know, I'm getting a bit old now, but my early days of policing, I was probably mopping up more problems caused by the security industry than resolved by the security industry. And I think yeah. you take forward quite a lot of um, subconscious bias uh, around that so you've got to start countering that whereas I bet the young cops in New South Wales and elsewhere today probably go to incidents where security professionals are behaving responsibility uh, responsibly and actually aiding the effort rather than getting in the way of it and so that legacy that clearly I carry with me, probably won't come through the newer generation. So it feels to me it's the blokes like me that you've got to start influencing and get them to start on that conversation because those who come will follow naturally because they've had a different experience. Yeah. Did your process begin with government or with police? Who was the one that put up their, their hand first? Police. Said police. Yeah, so it began with police trying to influence government and say, 
we want you to support us better by building into a government strategy this requirement to work with the private sector, which they did. Uh, our counterterrorism strategy was republished. It gets published every few years, uh, updated. It was republished last year, and in there is a, uh, a section that says and commits to working uh, together with the private sector. What that didn't come with was a strategic direction as to what that actually looks like. So we created our own interpretation of that. I and mean, that's what cops do, they fill gaps. Um, we created our own strategic uh, interpretation of that, and that's what we're moving forward with. I think the next phase of the argument is to go back to government and say, this is what we're doing. We're just approaching the next comprehensive spending review. So we have a normally a sort of four or five year cycle for spending reviews. Uh, next review's up. What is your interpretation of it? Are we doing what you want us to do? We think you need to do a bit more. We think we need to move into the sort of legislated space a little bit more. But more importantly, we need some money to do this as well. It's all been done by people double and triple hatting. Yeah. The money aspect of it's an interesting aspect because obviously funding is everything when it comes to this sort of stuff. And you've, you've had a little bit going on in the UK over the last 12 months. You know, a few things like elections and Brexit and a couple of other bits and pieces. Given that everything tends to happen in cycles in governments, how do you get the government's attention and get them to pay, uh, I suppose, the, the necessary attention and provide the budget to something like this in such a busy yeah. space? So, so, I mean, there are clear processes for defining comprehensive spending reviews and, and bidding into them. And, and to be honest with you, a process the process the process. The real influence is done outside of those processes, isn't it? It's about making sure that security ministers, uh, people who work in the Treasury, really understand what the need is. It's about being really compelling. And that's all done by people way, way more senior than me going to have those conversations with ministers and, and really let them understand how it is. Now, does that message always land? No, it doesn't. Um, do we suffer from a little bit of smoke and mirrors? Oh, massively. You know, our budget for the last few years was about to drop off a cliff edge. The government said, no, no, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll fill the gap. But actually, the money they gave us, so much of it disappeared on pensions, uh, you know, CPI indexes. Very little of it ended up being used for operational uh, delivery. And, yeah. and we... We marked time. We didn't improve. We marked time. That's the best we could do. So, and we've been in a difficult place over the last few years, as you quite right identified, you know, elections, Brexit. We are, I think, on our second or third year of an extension from the last comprehensive spending review. So we should have actually had this all squared away a couple of years ago. They've just started it, or allegedly starting it, um, this year. So we're two years beyond where we should be. Now, the big problem with that is that across that period, that's the period that the orthodoxy has changed. So we started the Comprehensive Spending Review probably appropriately for the threat we were dealing with. In that time, the threats changed beyond all recognition, yeah. including hostile states operating on our, on our territory. So our next budget settlement, I think, has got to look very, very different. And people like me, both inside and outside the organisation, are trying to push that message. My seniors are similarly doing that. And look, let's be honest, you, know, you just have to pick up a paper and see what's going on. You look at the number of uh, attacks we've disrupted both in the UK and globally, it hasn't gone away. It's not going to go away. It will change. It will morph. It always has. Yeah. Nick, we're coming to the end of the time that we've been allotted for this, but uh, my final question to you would simply be, you know, if we were to try and map out a roadmap for this process from where we are now to where we need to be, in, in as short a time as possible, what would you suggest that looks like? Well, first of all, be sure of where you want to be. Yep. That's the, the, the first thing on any journey, isn't it? So I, I think roadmap would be 
find the key influences in policing, industry, government, try and get them to sit down together and, and if nothing else, agree what the end game might look like and then start identifying what each has to do to get to those steps. And it might well be a very, very long journey, particularly if you've got to start changing the regulatory processes and the such like. But it won't start until those people are sitting around that table talking with each other. And that it, it's, it genuinely is that personal relationship. It's not even a particularly you know, corporate relationship. It's a personal relationship is what builds trust. So energy into doing that would be my first uh, step. And don't wait until there's an attack to actually do something about do it. Do it now. Do it now. There's a great phrase that people use is don't learn to dance two minutes before the dance starts. Yeah, or two minutes after the dance has started. Uh, worse, yeah, way worse, yeah. Get on yeah. with it now and choose your dance partner well. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. You're really welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find others just like it in the ASIAL podcast series at uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, the Android Store, and all the other great places in which you can find the best podcasts. And we look forward to catching up with you again next time. <laughs>